Tonight I thought I'd talk about, and I promise it won't get any more difficult than that, it's probably about the most important concept in the whole of the Tibetan tradition and the late Indian Mahayana tradition. It's not so much a concept, I'm going to try and turn it into something which you can relate to an ordinary experience, which is this uh, notion which you might have come across for those of you who've delved into any Mahayana teachings whatsoever and underlies the whole of the Mahamudra practice, as you'll see from probably about Wednesday onwards, is this concept or notion of emptiness, which you may or may not have come across at all. The translation of a, a Sanskrit term, which is Shunyata, it was actually a term that was used in Indian mathematics, surprisingly enough, which meant absolutely everything and absolutely nothing. So it's both nothing and plenitude, nothing and everything, as well. It's a much, much misunderstood term. However, before I talk about that directly, I want to go straight back to the teachings of the Buddha and to something I mentioned the other night. I can't remember exactly which night it was now, but I mentioned it in terms of the three marks of existence. I think it might have been the first night. The three marks of existence we have that are talked about by the Buddha in Sangsara. Anything that possesses these three marks is Sangsara. And that's one of the determining ways that we know that it is. The first way that we know is that it's Dukkha for a start off. It's unsatisfactory, it's suffering, it's anguish, it's anxiety. And I came across a recent translation um, who said the first noble truth is the noble truth of stress. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting modern translation. I don't know if I totally agree with it, but as you can see, anything that has those marks is part of Dukkha and is part of Sangsara. The other one which I talked about was impermanence. But things are changing. Everything is changing continuously. There is nothing we can rely on to remain the same. Nothing in this world whatsoever. From the highest mountain, the most solid looking object on the earth, all those man-made structures which date back thousands of years, to, of course, far more radically changing phenomena such as ourselves and animals and plants and everything else. Nothing remains the same. A Greek once said this as well. He said, uh, everything is changing. You never step into the same river twice. <laughs> um, actually, a student who said you never step into it once. But, uh, <laughs> So everything is changing, everything is flowing, everything is a continuous flux of existence. I spoke about our psychological condition is actually we don't like that, so that causes us yet more pain, yet more suffering and more dukkha and anguish. Yet, if you like, if you want a, a fact of existence, that is one of the most fundamental facts about existence, one we continuously deny. And I won't go about on about that anymore, but I probably will keep on going on about it over the week. Then I mentioned the other factor, and I kind of glossed over it very quickly. 
and didn't say much about it at all, which is a teaching you've all probably bumped into at some stage or other and have either vague or not so vague understanding of what it's about. It's a teaching where the Buddha says everything is anatta or anatma, that things are not self, is the way it's usually translated. Now this means, you know, we've got patently uh, very experiential things which he first talks about, haven't we? Suffering, and anxiety and stress and all the rest of it that I mentioned, and impermanence, and the two things to be linked, certainly in our experience. And those all seem to be very intuitive. Things we can get a handle on immediately. Yet when the Buddha says, and of course everything is anatta, Everything is not self. It seems to be somewhat more counterintuitive. Not something we bump into in our experience, really, is it? Or so much so. I mean, have you ever bumped into Anatha, particularly? <laughs> so it's not something we, we sort of come across that easily. So in other words, it requires some imaginative insight, some inquiry on our part to discern what's going on when the Buddha says things are anatma or anatta, that they are not self. The classic formulation of showing that, for example, this psychophysical thing, which I am, is anatta, is an analysis, which is analysed in terms of five psychophysical aggregates. The first one is physical, and the other four are mental. And this is meant to be a reasonably exhaustive account of what we are as persons. In this analysis, and I'll go through it very rapidly in a second. In this analysis, what we have is the idea of the one thing dissolved into a number of things. So where, for example, you and I normally perceive unity, or actually more directly perceive almost emotionally some kind of unity, the Buddha's analysis takes it down so that actually, rather than one thing, in this particular analysis, we have five things. These are form, which is our physical form, all of the processes which make up our physical body, including the blood, the tissue, and lymph, everything that makes up our, our physicalness in the world. Moving on to feelings, and for those of you coming across as new, feelings is not emotions as we normally speak about feelings in the Western world. Feelings are something called Vedana, which is the bare, bare feeling of liking something, disliking something, or neither liking or disliking it. Then something usually is translated as perception, which is you know, sanyana, which actually really is more like discrimination. It's the ability to perceive an object and discriminate what it is and recognize it, what it is. So when I look at this, I see some kind of table, and I know what it is. 
Then we have something which is known as the Sankara. These are sometimes translated as volitions. I tend to translate it as formations. It's very technical, it doesn't mean anything, does it really? But what we have here is, remember I was talking about all those habits that we have? Well, this is the repository of all our habits. These are the formations. In other words, life throws us in certain situations. We have a way of dealing with it. It throws us in a similar situation. We deal with it in the same way. And it continues and it continues. And so we sediment ways of behavior, forms of being in the world. So within that, if you like, are all of our dispositions. Within this fourth of the parts of the analysis of the self is all of our dispositions to act in the world. And then we finally have at the bottom of all that is vijnana or consciousness. Consciousness, by the way, is nothing in itself in the Buddhist analysis. So when you say, where is you? Is it my consciousness? This analysis says, well, no, your consciousness is not, because it isn't anything unless it has an object. In other words, consciousness must always have an object to arise. Now, those objects might be things in the world, the things I see around me, but it also might be a fear, a wish, a hope, any of those kinds of mental phenomena that we encounter. So, consciousness itself only arises in dependence on something else arising. So, if you like, in, in our little analysis here, what we've taken this thing to be called a self, or an atma, to use the Sanskrit term, or atta in Pali, we've taken this thing and we've shown it actually can be dissolved into five functions, none of which are self. Consciousness can't be self, because it's got to have, if you like, if you stacked them all up, listed them, it's got to have all of the above in order to function. In other words, it must have the formations, it must have discriminations, it must have feeling, and it must have a body to function. Rupa itself, if we take the other end of the extreme, or form, which is usually translating as form, also can't be the self because it's very hard for us to identify with the body as just being the self. Because in other words, the body doesn't exist without its feelings, without its discrimination, and all of the mental phenomena. And so on and so forth. I could go into this fairly detailed, but I'm not going. I'm just trying to make a point here. So we take one seemingly solitary unitary object, which most of us don't just think of as a kind of intellectual thing, we feel it, don't we? The idea of a self. It's the bit that gets angry. The bit that feels affronted when somebody insults you. So we take this idea of the one unitary thing and we show, in fact, there is a whole load of processes going on none of which can be identified as being this self. So we're left with a lot of processes, but no self. In other words, we've differentiated what is not self. 
So this is not-self rather than no-self. This is a teaching that was given by the Buddha in the famous middle way that Buddhism always goes on about. It was part of the middle way teaching. That ordinarily, just in our kinds of opinions, thoughts about the world, we generally fall into two extremes. The first extreme is the one he identifies particularly with the notion of the Atman or the Self which is one of eternalism. In other words, it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and you find teachings within, in particular if you take some of the Upanishads, the oldest, some of the oldest stratas of Indian literature, some of you are probably familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, it was probably one of the most classic of Indian Sanskrit texts, where, for example, Krishna says in the Gita, the Atman is that which is neither born nor destroyed. If you think you kill, you mistake, because you can't destroy this essence of the person, which is the Atman. So here we have a picture, I don't know if it's a terribly intuitive picture, in fact it seems to be counterintuitive to the way that most of us tend to think, and I'm not saying when we think philosophically, but when we just think normally about it, or when we think emotionally. We feel this strong sense of a solid self, almost existing independently. Now, this independent existence that it's supposed to have is the kind of thing that I've just spoken about in terms of Upanishad or the Bhagavad Gita that this thing wouldn't depend on something else for its existence. It's eternal. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. It cannot be destroyed because it doesn't depend on something else. Only things which are dependent can be destroyed. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum that the Buddha identifies as being common to a lot of thought is if it's not eternal, it mustn't exist at all or if it's not eternal then it's destroyed utterly and completely without residue. There is nothing left. This is the other end of the spectrum which is generally known as annihilationism or nihilism, to use a more philosophical term. So two ends of the spectrum. Something goes on forever or something doesn't go on at all. And the Buddha said actually that's the way most of our opinions fall about things. Whenever we open our mouths to discuss things, or to talk about things, or think about things, we generally fall into one of those two extremes. There's either eternal, or it doesn't exist at all. So the Buddha identifies the middle way between the two extremes, so say the classic middle way. Over the centuries from the Buddha's death, up until about the first or second century, there's a lot of development in Buddhism. I don't want to go on about them because it's not what we're here for. Because I want to really come back to you know, the sort of things that we're doing here. But a lot of developments go on. And it seems apparently that what happens is that, like most religious movements, Buddhism itself drifts towards an idea of something having real existence 
having real existence, not dependent on something else for its existence. So there's a figure in the second century. Now to the Mahayana, this figure is almost known as the second Buddha. There's somebody called Nagarjuna. And he lives around about the end of the first century to the second century. He is extremely famous within all of the schools of Mahayana Buddhism, particularly the Tibetan tradition. But he's influential in Chan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and many, many other forms of, of you know, Mahayana forms. Those are the most well-known ones, just mentioning them. What Nagarjuna does is he tries to bring back the middle to the path of Buddhism, to the path of the middle, you know, bring, bring it back to the middle way that it feels he's drifted, that he feels it's drifted away from. Now I think in terms of the history, it might not be of that much interest to you, but I think even just this movement to remind us about the middle way is very very much worth taking on board for us all because in our thought processes, in the way that we think about things, there's this tendency to drift to those two extremes, particularly the, the, the extreme of wanting to cling on to something as being real. And by, here, by when you hear me say the word real, I mean absolutely real. Absolutely real. Not conventionally real, but ultimately real. Something, you might not want to think of it in those terms, just something like an atman. Now, that sounds probably all very esoteric to you, I don't know. But, let's talk about something very practical. When I say something is beautiful, I very, very, very rarely think of it as just being simply adventitious. Somehow, there's a kind of thought buried in my mind and the way that I perceive the object, that this object is intrinsically beautiful, is intrinsically therefore desirable, and something therefore I should possess. Has that ever come across to you? You look at something and you think, gosh, that's wonderful, I'd really like that. There's something about it I really want, and I want to get it now. Now that's translating something that's really quite philosophical into something really practical that goes on in our ordinary lives. You look in the window, you see something that you like, and you say, I must have it. Now, you wouldn't say if that had said, maybe beautiful, might not, couldn't really tell. You'd probably walk away, you wouldn't want to go and get it, would you, particularly if you went through that process. So there must be something you feel that's really within the object that you want. Now, equally, on the other hand, when you say something is ugly, repulsive, it's almost like it possesses this intrinsic quality of being ugly, repulsive, undesirable, you don't want it, you're trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Or, let's talk about human relations. Good and bad. People you like, people you dislike. There's this person who does something bad to you, and what happens? And chances are, you'll think they're, you're, they're a pretty horrible person. Now, for the rest of their days, they might continue to do nice things towards you. But you're saying things like, I wonder what they want <laughs> doing that for me. 
In other words, you still continue to view them in this intrinsic way, as intrinsically possessing, possessing this kind of badness or nastiness which they, you know, that they've exhibited in the past. Equally so, might be the other way. Somebody does something nice to you, but then there's a whole stream of really rotten things they do to you after that, and you still think, oh, they couldn't really mean it. <laughs> and things like that. You know, I'm giving you silly examples, but these are sort of things that go on in the world. Now, when we take the idea of intrinsic existence, the idea of something like an essence, the idea of something really belonging to the object, this is what we're talking about. In really practical terms, we believe the object or the someone to possess something that is really part of them. The classic, actually, the classic one in, in our discourses, particularly in the West, and you see this in the tabloid press a lot, you know, when something really horrible is committed. I'm not devaluing this at all, but it's the idea of kind of intrinsic evil that the person possesses. And they're beyond redemption. They can't possibly change. There's no way, even, you know, look at the furore we've had in the press in Britain about the release of these two young killers. You know, there's kind of big drive towards retribution that they can't possibly be different. They're still the same as they were before. As if they possess some kind of intrinsic evil. Now, every time, as I say, you see a, a nasty incident occur, something really horrible, that's the kind of headline you see emblazoned across the tabloid press. It's this kind of intrinsic existence which the Buddha, in his talk about Anatta and Nagarjuna, when he talks about Shunyata, says does not exist. It can be found nowhere at all. Nothing possesses intrinsic existence at all, anywhere. Now let us think in a second. It means when we look around the world, Nothing has any essentiality to it. Neither you, nor I, nor this carpet, this building, nor any of the things that we see in the world possesses any non-dependent existence. In our senses, this means, of course, that everything that happens to us, that is responsible for our life, is dependent. Our lives are dependent. Our very existence is a dependent existence. All our thought processes are dependent thought processes. All our physical processes are dependent physical processes. We exist, in put it in very simple terms, we exist in the world dependent on others for our existence. And I'm not just talking about human others, I'm talking about all sorts of otherness, from plants to everything else. We depend for our existence in a radical way. Now, this search for non-dependent existence, for something which is isolatable and you know, continues forever, Nagarjuna tries to deflate with the notion of shunyata. Shunyata means something like emptiness. 
often when I write this up on a board, which I don't have, apart from this wonderful editor here, <laughs> is no thingness. Anything, any phenomena doesn't possess thingness. If that means anything to you. Emptiness might be a more sort of usual phrase you're used to. Now, let me try and put this in a very simple way. When I look at any phenomena for its essential existence, I do not find any essential existence. Instead, what I find is that it's empty of intrinsic existence. Empty of self-existence. The Sanskrit term can be translated both ways. It's a word Swavava, which means self-existent, intrinsic existence, inherent existence. These are all synonyms. So in other words, I look for this thing within the object and I don't find it. I find that it, you use Sanskrit again, Nisvavava, it possesses non-intrinsic existence, non-self-existence. The object is simply not the way I believe it to be. Now, when I say object here, I mean you and I and everything in the world doesn't possess this form of existence at all. Now, rather than being content with that, Mahayana Buddhism, of which Mahamudra forms a part, says that we must actually experience that not just have it as a nice intellectual idea, but we must experience it, particularly in relation to our thought processes. But none of our thought processes themselves have any form of inherent existence. They are all dependent arisings. Now, by dependent arising, I mean it just depends on something else to give rise to it. Now, that's not to say the same thing as it doesn't possess reality. Let me give you a very simple example. If I look at this thing that's working at a table here, let me place my watch and microphone on, when I say it's empty, it doesn't vanish out of existence when I say that, or if I saw it as perhaps the guardian or a Buddha might see it in terms of its real emptiness again it just wouldn't vanish I mean in other words gosh it's empty I can't put my watch on it anymore <laughs> it still continues to remain in existence now why is that? it's because the ultimate way it exists is empty of what I believe to be there can I say that again? it's probably quite a little bit it's getting late at night as well. <laughs> when I look at this thing, its ultimate way of existing is empty of what I believe to be there. What I believe to be there is intrinsic or inherent existence. That's another thing, when I say believe, you feel it with all your kind of emotions, your heart, everything. That's the way you approach it. This is why you get so upset when it breaks. Or when it turns out that your friend isn't so good. Because you felt intrinsically they were good. Now these are, I would say, silly examples, but they're the things we do encounter in the world. So, when I say 
the world is empty, it doesn't disappear. You wouldn't expect it to. But you have another way of seeing it. A new vision about the way things actually are. A new way of orientating yourself in the world. Now, why is all this negative magic? Not terribly philosophical and complete waste of time. Let's go back to sitting there with our eyes closed. <laughs> well, the reason for all this, why the Buddha taught anatta, why Nagarjuna taught shunita, was to decrease one fundamental thing, which is supposedly the thing that's responsible for dukkha, which is craving. Craving for something. You can only crave for something if you believe it really intrinsically exists. Now, let me just... Just a second, I'll just say something first. Is that when you crave... Now, let me, let me give you this word as it should be. That's the way we translate it as craving. The actual word in Pali is tamha, which means an absolute thirst. It really is very practical. It's a really practical term in its original language. Tamha means thirst, an unquenchable thirst. Just like, you know, when you're in a desert and you've just got this thirst that you just cannot get rid of at all. No matter how much you drank, you would never get rid of it. This is an unquenchable, unstoppable thirst. And it leads rise to grasping after something. Now, if I was putting this in very simple terms, if there is no thing to grasp after, what are you grasping at? In other words, if I look at that beautiful, beautiful thing, I don't say it's not conventionally beautiful. Because something is conventionally beautiful, and as you know, you look through the history of art, for example, you see changing conventions of beauty. And they're conventions and they're according to time and fashion and all sorts of things. And within the conventions of the time, you might say something was beautiful. But it's not intrinsically beautiful. So the question for Nagarjuna, the question for Mahayana Buddhists is, then what are you grasping after if it's just a set of conventions? Where is the real thing? that you're attempting to possess, that you're attempting to possess in the beautiful object, in the seeing a person in a particular way as either inherently bad or inherently good or whatever. So conventional existence is okay. There's nothing wrong with conventional existence. It's just not the ultimate way things exist at all. They exist without intrinsic existence. They are no thing. So when I say that the object is shunya, I mean it has an absence. It lacks something I believe to be there. So whenever you hear this you know, so-called complicated teaching about shunyata, it's not complicated at all. It's actually very simple. It says, I look at this, I believe something to be in it. When you actually look for it, it's not there. Now, a lot of time is spent in Mahayana Buddhist meditations, and Mahamudra is no exception, although we're not going to do that many of them at this stage. 
Mahamudra is no exception in actually having lots and lots of meditations where you try to find the intrinsic existence of a phenomena or yourself. I once questioned, I was very curious about this, and I said, you know, after the umpteenth time of being sitting there doing one of these analytic meditations of trying to find where, you know, where the essence of the self is. And again, it was one of Dalai Lama's tutors, and I asked him, he said, why on earth are you keep going on about this, and looking for, the, you know, for this thing? And Tibetans are very pragmatic, I don't know if any of you have been around Tibetans for very long, but very pragmatic, and he said, well, it's a bit like losing your purse. <laughs> I said, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> So, well, it's a bit like losing your purse. You know what happens when you lose your purse? He says, you know, you look for every possible place that it might be until you convince yourself you lost it. In the same way with this notion of intrinsic existence or the self, you look for every possible place it might be until you convince yourself that you never had it in the first place or it was never there. So, coming back to the practicalities, the practicalities is that we imbue our thoughts with an existence that they do not have. We give them a, a power which they do not possess. So those thoughts that we have, that we label good and bad and indifferent and all the rest of it, they don't really possess that. At all. There is in fact no thing to them at all. They don't have any ultimate reality. Of course they have a conventional dependent reality. They arise on dependent circumstances and conditions for their arrival. So you know, every time you get angry there's a stimulus which responds and there might be a history as to why you respond in that way. So there are dependent arising. So your thought process is, you know, you're not an inherently angry person or an inherently bad person or an inherently good person. Just some of your thoughts happen to be good and bad conventionally. That's all. They do not possess the power that you attribute to them. It's incredible, isn't it? Once you, I don't know if you get the force of that, if you actually take that power away from these thought processes, you know, sometimes people you feel like your thoughts are in control of you rather than you in control of your thoughts. You know, there's a lot to be asked still question begging about what the you is and all this, but basically, um, because um, I know what you're saying, I know exactly what you're saying, but if someone has an all-consuming thought about themselves, which takes them down to the, the realm of hell. Say, for instance, I'm bad or um, I'm guilty, whatever it might be. Um, and that's enough to oneself. Then that seems that can be incredibly powerful and can end up, you know, with depression or, or suicide or whatever. Well, I'm not, I'm not questioning that at all. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's exactly what goes on in most of our in most of our processes. What I'm saying is that that doesn't have to go on. In other words, if we can come into the right relationship with those thoughts, in other words, to 
de-invest them with the power that they appear to have, to de-invest them with that power. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that, that's exactly what happens in terms of the ramification of the thoughts which drag you down into certain states and how those thought processes become and the states that they give rise to become monolithic. You know, so depression can become all-consuming. That's exactly what's happening for most of us. Except, you know, when we're not in that state, we still invest our thoughts with power, which they don't have. So part of what all these practices, Mahamudra practices, are about is actually taking the power away from it. So seeing them for what they are, literally, which is dependent arising where they don't possess any efficacy on their own. They do not possess any power that we do not give, invest in them, in those thought processes. Now, some of this will become clearer, I think, as we start to do some of the meditations on Wednesday, which I'm going to link to this. But I think this is a necessary prerequisite for you to understand this. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense why we're doing what we're doing. So Shunyata is, is the tool to de-invest that power. In other words, all of our thoughts, everything arises out of emptiness. Shut this question up. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, I mean, the idea of one one example would be, um, let's say, money. Uh, we give power to money. Mm. And we can actually try and look for money. You can't find it. You've got pieces of paper, you've got bits of metal, you've got computer signals or electric signals in the computer yeah. in the bank. We can't actually find them. Yeah. And then and then when when you we call paper, which is again is a is a wood, again on and on. And yet the power of money, the force uh, we've given to money itself is so strong that if you lose that piece of paper or that bit a bit of coin, mm. you know, only causes something <coughs> Yes, yeah, sure. If you try and grasp money, you can't. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm meaning. That's a very good example as well. That money is just a convention. It's an agreement. Um, for example, moving from certain uh, forms of exchange based on gold to not based on gold, and all sorts of conventions are involved in setting up the whole monetary process. Power itself is a convention. Now, when we look at you know, where in the power does, you know, does the power in a state lie? Well, these days you can't even say it lies with government. It's spread, it's diffused. Power itself is a dependent arising. So no thing possesses the power. No one isolatable thing at all. So power exists and comes about by a whole heap of things coming together. And the same with you know, our thought processes, coming, bringing really back to, to home, our thought processes themselves are a whole coming together, a concatenation of events itself, which give rise to certain states. But the states themselves don't possess intrinsic existence. In other words, they don't possess the power that we think they have. Also, the objects which are proffered, remember I was talking about the proffering of objects, within our society, which are continuously being proffered to us as being desirable. <laughs> so it's a wonderful word, isn't it? Desirable. You've got to have this. We're captivated by these things. We're captivated by them so much that we, sometimes, and it's very difficult to know, sometimes we fall for it. 
I think, well, yeah, I must have that. <laughs> it, you know, I'm, I'm somehow bereft if I haven't got it. Um, again, it's the idea that this thing possesses a certain power, a certain efficacy, a certain being that it doesn't actually have at all. Now, part of the process in this form of Buddhism, and I think actually throughout the whole Buddhism, but it's just really, really emphasized in the Mahayana based on Nagarjuna, is, is stripping this away, taking it away, using shunyata as a tool, because that's all it is. Shunyata itself, um, and Nagarjuna actually says it's very interesting, that of course those who think shunyata itself is ultimate existence are incurable. <laughs> In other words, if I go looking around for shunyata all over the place, you know, shunyata is just taking away something. It's not saying what it is. Can I clarify that a little bit? How do you apply it to ethics? That's a big question, actually. It's what I call the ethics of emptiness. Um, well, the, the simple answer, without going into too much detail tonight, um, the simple answer is, of course, that when we talk about ethics, that what we see in terms of you, I, everybody else, is a world of dependencies, a world of not isolated egos, isolated from each other, but a world of, of ultimate dependencies, where, you know, as we were saying last night, you and I depend on each other in some way. So the ethics, I think, is an ethics of cooperation that come out of this. So you and I are not intrinsic existences. We both depend on each other, but we also depend on yet others for our existence. In a whole chain of dependencies, we can't even begin to trace. So in other words, our existence, just in our very existence, we are responsible. Just in our very existence. So it becomes... The ethics of shunyata are an ethics based on responsibility. On, you know, responsible for the other because the other is responsible for me, and vice versa. That's the... Sorry. You were saying there's no thing that's there, then mm. what is there to be happy about? Because you're saying you Yeah, I mean, it's a convention. Because the person exists conventionally, their suffering is, you know, in saying that there is suffering, I'm not saying it's unreal. I'm not saying because there is no ultimate self, you don't exist. Do you, do you see that distinction? Because it's quite important to get, because otherwise it all falls flat on its face. In saying to you that actually when I look at you, I can't find any intrinsic existence to you. It's not saying you're non-existent. It's saying, I don't, you don't exist in the way that perhaps I would normally perceive you. In fact, the existence I now attribute to you is far more complex than the idea of possessing an ex- in a, a, a sort of little bit, which is you, <laughs> within it all. Because that existence itself is dependent on things outside, as well as for all the processes which constitute what are called the five scandals, as well. You know, so it's a vastly complex process. So and actually, with the eye of shunyata, or shunyata, I unveil complexity, a complexity which is far above the simplicity of saying there is an essence there. 
So, of course, in saying that you know there's complexity there, I'm not dismissing you. Of course, there's a something, but it's not what the you know, it's not what I believe to be there. Does it make sense? <laughs> it's difficult. I mean, it's a difficult idea. The couple of the 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 bus crew must have asked. Who's been asking? Trying to ask for ages. Yeah.
That's exactly the answer. In other words, who I am today is dependent on who I was yesterday. And who I am today will depend, you know, will give rise to who I am in the future as well. So there is a mere process of dependent arising. So in terms of moral, in terms of ethicality, I can't just deny my deeds. I am responsible for them still. Now that's a way of explaining karma, in a sense, because culpability goes with that. You know, in other words, it gives rise to certain experiences. And I'm not talking about it in any vast metaphysical sense, it's just what I do, did yesterday, will at some point mature in the future. I'd just like to um, um, refer to the, the state of the world in reference to it. Um, mm-hmm. <coughs> I think in that, big, in that big ethical situation that you're presenting, I think that the word I would use is definitely ethics of responsibility. And what's happening at the moment is there is no ethics of responsibility by certain countries, by certain countries at all, for what is going on in the rest of the world. In other words, they see themselves in isolation. And that's again, if we put it, let's put it back home again. If we see ourselves in isolation from others, and I don't feel I have a responsibility towards you, or the poor in the world, or others. Now, it might be that you cannot do something directly, but there's lots of indirect things that people can do, as you know, and we're all aware of it these days. There's so many things that can be done with sensitivity, with application, and everything else. So, it's, it's becoming aware of the network within which we're embedded. How, how to use the very phrase that you've used, the ecosystem. We are embedded in ecosystems, we're embedded in social systems, we're embedded in all forms of social systems. In other words, we are not alone and we can't act as if we're alone in this world. So it's, it's a, you know, Buddhism of the Mahayana form has always, right from its early stages, been about that awareness. Whether it's actually translated is not always the case. 
But it's always been about that awareness, about our relatedness to others. Well, that's right. It's, it does, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, I mean, somebody who I mentioned last night, Sankapa, um actually talks about these things and he goes on to a vast, sort of really difficult tome about what I've been talking about, but in vastly more complex terms than I've talked about it. And he says, if you, you know if you understood this, because if you've understood it, the hairs on the back of your neck will stand up. In other words, it's become translated into something that has a real impact on you. And I think that's what you're meaning by insight. You have a real insight into that. Now this is why these processes of meditation within the Mahamudra tradition, within the Tibet traditions, have gone on to so rigorously, so rigorously, to try and not... They, they talk about it, actually, the Tibetan phrase for it, actually is turning the reasoning process, in other words, what we're doing here, trying to understand it intellectually, they talk about turning it from reasoning into reality. <coughs> so that I don't just you know, have it as a nice idea, but I actually, when I see something, I don't grasp under it after it because I understand it. I understand the real nature of that phenomenon. And that's what's being talked about here. So it's, it's a quite a, a rigorous process. Um, in the monasteries where I live, for example, I mean, the, the average length of study time um, was something like 22 years to get your degree <laughs> at the end of it. And that was debating six hours a day minimum, six days a week, about this very topic. And that was considered to be a meditative cultivation, you know, a process of cultivation, a cultivation of, of turning this um, seemingly abstract thing, which you can do, and I'm sure if you're hearing it for the first time, as I say, you might just think, this is very abstract, doesn't really apply to me. Um, but it's the real foundations of what all of this is about. The three principles, I think I might have mentioned the other night when I started talking about it, talk about three principles that you really, really have to have, if you like, a good intellectual understanding of, even if you haven't got the feeling for it yet, is the one I've gone on about for two nights, renunciation, bodhicitta, the awareness of 
you know, the awakening mind for others. And we'll talk about that the next time I talk. And shunyata. Those are the three preliminary foundations for all the practice within the system, within this tradition. Now actually that doesn't that doesn't move that far away from what the Buddha originally said at all. It's not a new invention. Except perhaps Bodhicitta is slightly different because it puts the emphasis on becoming awakened for the sake of others in order to help others in a really, really practical way. So that's it. It's so interesting when you talk about the monks, which is your mid, because they, after all, had renounced so much, whereas he and his room have some arguments with Power, like anything, is, is, is a dependent arising. It's not something which has possesses, as I say, this intrinsic existence, either for the individual or for, um, for the big system. In other words, the individual gets power sometimes by the investment of power by others. For example, it can be given to them. And often with you know, politicians and people in public places, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? You give it to them until sometimes, sometimes they're found wanting, and then you strip it away again. <laughs> so there's this kind of constant process. You, know, you think you might be powerful, but the most powerful have mostly fallen from grace. And you think of the, you know, some of the most powerful people in world history that have had this stripped away from them, taken away from them. So it's nothing which they have at all. It's, again, something which they are dependently invested with. And it can last for a short period of time, it can last for a longer period of time. But eventually it goes. Yes, that's the way it appears, that's not the way it necessarily is. I think that's the thing, is we don't see the transition. You don't see the transition from the pink to the blue, if you like. And so it appears to rise out of nowhere. Now, this is one sort of classic phrase I'd use, it's not actually a phrase that's used in Buddhism, but nothing arises out of nothing. 
Now, I mean that literally out of nothing. It doesn't come from nowhere in Buddhism. It always comes dependent on something else. Now, and that something else is a process of which you and I sometimes, because of our limited view, only see a snippet of the process that gives rise to it. So, for example, we might, in our own situation, find ourselves in a position and we say, how on earth did we get here? <laughs> Into this position. You know, why am I here? <laughs> and there's a good reason, only we can't see it. There's a whole chain of dependencies that give rise. What does he mean? <coughs> what does he mean when he says you can't create something which doesn't inherently exist? Well, I mean, perhaps I should rephrase that. You can create something that doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't inherently exist, but it doesn't make much sense to it, <laughs> ultimately. If you really understand it, in other words, if you really have insight into it, what are you craving becomes the question. You know, wherein is the beauty of this beautiful object other than in the conventions? And I might say, well, okay, the conventions give rise to a certain beauty, a certain understanding of it, but by next year it might have changed. So what exactly, in other words, the question becomes, and it's a question continuously, it's a process of investigating, what exactly is it you're trying to go like that? It's a bit like trying to grab sand that's slipping through your hand continuously. You don't get left with much in the end. And because they're dependent arising, yet we don't understand that, they are stripped away because it changes. You know, the beauty doesn't exist. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist forever. Now, I'm just giving that example. I'm sure you can think of lots of other examples. I've said, <laughs> that's what I have, right? Um, I'd like to go back to what you said, that can't tell what comments about. Sorry, sorry, I didn't hear. The, the comments about 22 years in the monastery. Yeah. Um, the tradition you're coming from, uh, kind of approaching through, is perhaps through um, inside. Mm-hmm. And it's dealing with the bench I wonder what you would, um, what's your thought on those teachers who say, well, actually, that's an obstacle. Um, you know, Christian American tell me packages like that. Mm-hmm. Because when I heard you say 22 years, and following on from this reference to intellectualizing rather than experiential mm-hmm. understanding of emptiness, I, I, I did kind of think that where it's gone wrong in a way, you know, to create interesting kind of structures. Well, um, two responses to that. One is, yes, it can go horribly wrong for some people. <laughs> I don't say all. I mean, I've seen some people come out of that system with incredible insight into it. Um, you know, it's, not, it's not an either-or. It's not either it's you know, direct access to insight is the, the way, and it's not that scholasticism and the kind of debate tradition also is the way. There are different individuals. There are different individuals in different ways to creating the same thing. I think if one gets stuck with either one or the other, that's where the problems start. Uh, and then to Buddhism itself has been one of these kind of controversies between, oh, it's got to be this way, or it's got to be that way, or it's got to be this way, or it's got to be that way. And what it doesn't take into account of is actually the individuals, some who might find it necessary to work through that really, really lengthy process. And 
Although it doesn't happen often, it does happen. I mean, I've seen it. I mean, I, I can only, I, mean, I hate, hate to say this, but you can only take that on trust. I mean, I actually have seen this work with some people. For others, it doesn't. You know, it just becomes exactly that, an intellectual exercise. You know, where, for example, debate becomes stylized and you learn the moves. And you can do it very well. You become very accomplished with it. And it doesn't bring about insight. Um, but I can also see, on the other hand, um, some fairly deluded people who think they're at, you know, getting direct insight into things. Um, that's the other extreme, but there are also people that do get it by very intensive, you know, more citizen sitting practice, sadhanas, all sorts of other ways of doing things. So my response to that really is, it isn't an either or. So, you know, my response is, is how do we know that wouldn't have happened anyway? Well, you don't. I know. <laughs> You don't. The, the, only, the only thing you can do is, is go the way you think your temperament takes you. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And I would never personally prescribe a route for people. Um, they, you have to find your own particular way of doing it and something you feel happier with. Now, also bearing in mind, of course, that we're subject to great self-delusion at times. Um, so you have to keep a vigilant eye about your own self-deception in terms of the path you, you do ultimately choose for yourself, be it an intellectual one or be it a non-intellectual one. That's my only caveat about it, really. I'm not quite sure of the distinction you're making. Well, I think this is the food. Yep. Yeah. It seems to me that we have a drive, a uh, sort of primal drive to be on hunger. Also, perhaps, um, sex drive. Mm. I don't know where, where that fits either. But um, perhaps it can slip from being a drive to being a desire or a craving. So yeah. it seems to me that, you know, this is the food or this is the sex or whatever. Oh. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I thought that was the distinction you were making. But what we're talking about is something which at least potentially can be satisfied, and something which can't be satisfied. You know, for example, if I'm just ordinarily thirsty, if I get a glass of water, it might quench my thirst. At least potentially that's the case, unless I happen to be in an extreme situation. So at least potentially that's capable of being satisfied. Where with the craving that we're talking about in Buddhism, this tanha, this, this absolute thirst, is even in theory unquenchable. It's unsatisfiable. That's the distinction that's being made. So yes, it was accepted that there are certain things like food, and you know, some you know, for lay people, sexuality, obviously because of the monks, that's completely different. There's a different relationship to sexuality, but for lay people, then there's a sex drive which potentially is satisfiable and everything else. But then there is this absolute craving which is incapable of being satisfied. It's just endless. You would never I mean it's 
it's, how I describe it often is, is kind of the grass is always greener syndrome because you know here's this thing you really really want I mean I often joke about this and say it's the, if only X I would be happy <laughs> if only I had this and you fill in your own space by the way <laughs> I would be happy chances are if you get the X in the missing space you'll come back about 10 minutes later and say if only I had I would be happy <laughs> or however many however long it takes but the point is it doesn't last very long so in other words happiness is deferred it's always placed out onto something else happiness is seen as elsewhere too peace and harmony and all the other things are seen as elsewhere something which us things can give you others can give you yeah, without so and so I wouldn't be happy without this thing I wouldn't be happy it's the same relationship it's the idea of, for example which is at the root of all of our commercialism is that it's telling us if we only we had this we would be happy and we, and we fall <coughs> for it <laughs> I mean we really fall for it don't we you know, um, that's why we go out and buy these things often Because even the natural drives in Buddhist monasticism are sublimated to the goal to awakening. So, in other words, okay, your you know, your desire and you know, your need for certain things are provided for. Sexuality is not one, but sexuality is the whole energy. In other words, it's usually spent in, in sexual activity or sexual fantasies and everything else is meant to be directed towards awakening. That's why. There's, there's, you know, why does the idea of chastity within Buddhist monasticism in the Theravadan tradition it's not essentially in the Theravadan tradition as Bhikkhu Buddha Dhamma here um, it's a very good example won't eat after a certain period of time so the whole the rest of the day can be spent freed up from even that basic thing of eating towards meditating and study and all the things that they do the life of the bhikkhu I mean one really has to take this is, is totally, totally ordered towards that one goal. Now I'm talking about the ideal monk, and there's not many of them around, but the ideal monk's life is, is totally, in other words, put into an optimal situation where the whole of that person's life can be directed towards that thing. Within Theravadan societies, um, as within most of societies, there's the idea of you know, the Dharma, where the monk doesn't even have to provide their own food. The food is given to them, offered to them. They don't have to provide it, they don't have to cook it even. Now, that's a contract with society that the monk enters into. You have to be a good monk in order to be supported by that society. That was the original contract. Because, in other words, the rest of society is providing you with a special space to do something. So you better do it well. Now, this channels out, I mean, we're going to slightly off the subject, this channels out in, in, in Buddhist society 
not always in terms of what goes on in the monastery, but in the public, they have to at least be seen to behaving well. <laughs> monks. Um, Sri Lankan society is very much on the appearance of how the monk behaves in society. Uh, and that's how they would class them as good or bad monks. But, you know, it's kind of social conventions. That's actually, Krini was asking for being born into a Christian culture. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I had a very funny instance once. There's a, there's a monk up in Birmingham um, called Dr. Ruata Dhamma. He's quite a well-known scholar Burmese monk. and um, He had all these Burmese monks sitting behind him. There's all these weapons like you out front here. And he suddenly looks around and says, all these people are Buddhists. These aren't. They're just born into it. No, because that's, in a sense, that's what it's about. In other words, because we come at it often as Westerners, we engage a lot more with the ideas, whereas when you come, it comes, you know, no matter whether we like it or not, from uh, most Buddhists born in Buddhist cultures, it's a faith. And that's the way it is. We don't, coming at it afresh, coming at it from out of a completely different culture, we do not take it that way. In fact, one of the things we emphasise in the West, obviously, is the inquiry aspect. You know, don't take anything on trust stuff. Now that's not the way traditional cultures approach it, which is why they've got into the situations that they have. One of the big things that have arisen, of course, within uh, 40 years really, is this notion of Buddhist engagement. For example, in Thailand, you'll see many monks now devoting themselves to public service programs like drug rehabilitation and alcohol abuse and all sorts of public service things, which historically you would have never have got at all. Monks lived within their monasteries and they did what they did within their monasteries. Yeah, so it's changing. Buddhism itself is a changing phenomena. <laughs> Good, mm. is kind. But the minute you do that, you've got an essence. 
Yeah. The most it can be can be a potential. Hmm. Which means that you must also then have like a moral potential. Uh-huh. But it can't be anything more than that. Well, you, you, you've hit on a massive argument, the reason why I won't go into you've hit on a massive argument in the history of Buddhism here, in that very nature, about the nature of Tathagatagarbha, the nature of Buddha, you know, what is the actual nature of Buddha nature. I mean, many, for example, say, uh, have argued for the Buddha nature as being, you, know, you have Buddha nature complete as an essence, I said, well, you're just closet Hindu. That's actually what's happened in the history of Buddhism. Um, you know, you, you've got the idea of the Atman, just now calling it Buddha nature, that's all. Um, so that's big, big quarrel in the history of Buddhism. If you're interested, I can point you in directions from literature if you're interested. It was really a kind of internal contradiction within Buddhism itself. Yeah, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. So for example, the, the school, I mean, I can speak authoritatively about school I come from in terms of practical stuff, mm-hmm. is that they take it as potential merely. That's all. Now, whereas some traditions within Tibetan Buddhism will take it as actual, mm-hmm. that there is this actual, and there's, there's a whole debate in Tibetan Buddhism about it. And so, if you're interested, I can point you in directions in literature. But linked back to that, well, in the very beginning, you talked about the notion of consciousness as well, mm-hmm. as having to have an object, yep. and having to have a form, having yep. to have a body. But yet, there again, if I, if I read kind of commentaries in Tibetan Buddhism, it talks about the notion of, of subtle consciousness. That actually can continue without a body, mm. right? And people talk about pure consciousness experience, mm. where there is no object. How does that fit in? Again, that seems to be an internal contradiction. Well, they do fit in. There are there are ways of describing it. These are quite deeply philosophical issues, which you know, I, mean, I, you know, I could go into, but I don't know if everybody would be interested. But I mean, the whole point about this is that, for example, consciousness can exist without a body, but it would have to have something like the sankharas, or the sanskaras, which are the, the uh, formations which would accompany it. So in other words, consciousness would have this object, the sanskaras. Now, subtle consciousness has consciousness of itself as an object. So it never doesn't have an object. It just has consciousness itself as an object. So in other words, it's self-reflective. But, you know, these are quite complex philosophical issues. Yeah. I don't want to go into it at <laughs> 10 to 9 at night. Well, I'll take one more if anybody's got another question. Can you say something about the relationship between insight into the nature of impermanence and insight into the nature of emptiness in terms of the vision grasping? Well, they're both ultimately reducible to the same, that actually understanding emptiness is to understand impermanence. In other words, to understand that everything is a dependent arising. It's just that some things change quicker than others. <laughs> That's all. So the two, um, for example, Dogen um, says exactly, I mean, Dogen will say, for example, awakening is living impermanence. That's all it is. And understanding impermanence is to understand that nothing has essence whatsoever. Understanding that, then understanding the true nature of impermanence, or vice versa, coming at it from the shunyata angle, understanding that the thing doesn't possess intrinsic existence, in a sense is to understand the same thing. And both will decrease grasping, because if you're, after, if you're grasping after something which is ultimately impermanent, again, what are you actually grasping after? That's the question. 
What are you actually at? What are you trying to get at? By holding on to something. Now, it doesn't mean you don't care. I mean, the, the, I won't add that. By seeing something as impermanent and not having an essence, it doesn't mean you don't care that you come into the right relationship with it. So it's about correcting the relationship. Now, I'll say more about this because we haven't talked a lot about bodhicitta. I've only sort of hinted at bodhicitta so far. And bodhicitta is the next layer, which I think brings, you know, Harry's question about ethicality, bringing the ethical nature back into it again. Because, interesting, I could leave you with one Tibetan phrase, which says, insight into emptiness without compassion is cold. Compassion without insight into emptiness is sloppy. <laughs> it's only when the two come together that you have real insight. I'll leave that for final thought for the day. 